0: our women's world cup football show on box 39
1: Put the message in the
0: Hello everybody and welcome to Box 39, our treasure chest of magazine, music and the funny side of life rooted in our community here on 106.6 FM Colm Radio. I am Bill Lawrence and I'm live here in Studio One with special guests for our Women's Football World Cup special. So it's my special pleasure to welcome back that friend of Cold Radio, uh, Dr. Carrie Dunn. Carrie lectures about women's experience in sport. She's appeared on Eurosport, written for 442 magazine, and she's authored one of the best books about women's football uh, called The Roar of the Lionesses. And of course, recently, she's been out in France, appearing on the excellent Offside Rule podcast. And given it's football, Brim Griffiths, bring Griffiths sorry, the eyes and the ears and the voice of Cold Radio, Football is back in the studio fresh from organising the Colchester Women's World Cup event in the new inn in Colchester and with so much to chat about as Women's World Cup football fever absolutely hits our streets send us your text, your tweets we are at Colubrin on Twitter and at Box39 on Facebook so as we open the Box39 Women's Football World Cup special here we go
2: It's box 39.
0: So, welcome once more to Box 39. As I said, we are here on 106 FM Colm Radio, and this is Ausgang Exit, our house band, with a revival of one of their songs from the 2010 World Cup era. And this is Walking Around Town in My Brand New Trainers. So, uh, this is where the magic happens. And I am Bill Lawrence, as I said. Please, get your letters and emails in. And, of course, now we can properly welcome uh, Bryn Griffiths and Carrie Dunn. So, first of all, hello, Bryn. Hello, Bill. And hello, Carrie.
2: Hello there.
0: And Carrie, of course, is not in the studio. Carrie is, uh, through the mysteries of technology, appearing from somewhere else in the world. (laughs) Now, Bryn, I believe it is time
3: for a bit of women's football history, isn't it? Yeah, I think that the World Cup's been an enormous success, but one of the things that is very odd, that the winner of the women's Ballon d'Or, the best player in the world, Ada Hegerberg, wasn't present at the World Cup. And I just think it's worth marking, why not, Carrie? Why why wasn't she there? (laughs)
0: Oh, see, see, Carrie's mysteriously moving around the world so much. There, we can't track her down. Uh, I'm trying to see if I can answer that one. Uh, and, and you might have wondered what the balloon door was that uh, Bryn was just briefly mentioning there. Uh, the balloon door is a sort of like the the best footballer, isn't it? Is it the uh, the person that's uh, considered to be the best player in the world as voted for? Yeah, it's a long-standing
3: people. competition. It's um. It's been in action. existence in men's football for many, many years. Oh, we're just uh, getting the old phone lines back on.
0: You can probably hear that in the background for Kerry. And uh, it's, it's technology, absolutely exciting stuff, Bryn. Don't you love it when you're living on the seat of your pants with this technology?
3: Well, I'm hoping our star guest is going to pick up her Skype
0: call at any moment. That sounds like my doorbell, actually. I'll tell you what, while we're waiting for that, let's just have a little listen to a poem from uh, uh, a gentleman that's a regular on this show, a gentleman called Mike Harwood. He's the Colm Radio Poet-in-Residence, and uh, he isn't with us tonight, but his wonderful poetry did actually feature at the colchester women's world cup event back at the outset of the competition in june now our roving reporting team captured the new in moment uh, in the pre argentina tension moment is it the bubbling point it was so let's hear charlie davidson at the world cup show i uh, heard the director of it and the multi-talented nelica
4: for females declared the English FA to 50,000 fans football will affect the players cro- procreation so they imposed a 50 year FA grounds ban for their own protection let them play for recreation first banned in the ni- in the 1890s and for 80 years the royal dutch FA caused female football strife declared the role of women should be restricted to that of fiancés, football players, mothers or the wife. Finally, in 1971 KNVB admitted women's football to the fold. The Oranje Löwe the Orange Lionesses, ended Germany's UEFA women's football hold in the summer of 2017 lifted European Championship gold. Football pundit Johan Dersen now admits he regarded football as an exclusively male sport but with five and a half million viewers tuning in I now eat humble pie, feel like it. D- <laughs> 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 if England meets the Netherlands in the quarterfinals If our defence goes on the wonk Beware the technically gifted Daniela van der Donk <laughs> Lika Martins of Barcelona could make us pay a price Pure lightning, she can turn a player just like Johan Cruyff. Don't sit back as you did against Scotland in the second half. Come on you lionesses, play 90 minutes. Take your chance.
5: Since I got the job really I've died away from the expectations, the ambition of this team and I sit here today in a position where I'm absolutely convinced that we can go to this World Cup and and, and have a good successful tournament and uh, you know football is football, anything can happen. But we've got a squad that's highly motivated, we've got a squad full of world-class players then we've got a squad that's now, I believe, got the belief and confidence to go to a World Cup to be successful, so that gives me great confidence as a manager.
0: So we are back and uh, with Ouskang Exit playing a little bit, just to remind them this is walking around town in my brand new trainers. So, as we were saying before, we were let down by the technology. Uh, we were. We, I said to Bryn, "Let's have a little bit of women's football history." And Bryn immediately came out talking about Ada Hagerberg, uh, the world's best player, and as we mentioned, the winner of the world's first women's balloon door. Ballon d'Or. Ballon d'Or.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, Bryn, take us away. So, Carrie, um, Ada Hegerberg wasn't at the World Cup. Tell us the story. Why wasn't she there if she's the best player in the world?
2: She doesn't play for Norway at all anymore. Um, it's not kind of a boycott of this World Cup, which has been reported as in some places. It's more that she doesn't think that in Norway and from the National Association that the women's team get the respect they deserve. It's not a wage dispute. It's more kind of attitudes. So, yeah, she's, she didn't
3: go to the World Cup. She's quite a player, isn't she? She, she lifted the French title. She lifted the Champions League trophies. And I, it, it was at the first um, women's Ballon d'Or that she she was secured.
2: Yeah,
3: that's right. Yeah, and, and I seem to recall that um, FIFA didn't quite pull off the um, award with the aplomb that one would hope. Um, there was some DJ, some bloke I'd never heard of, Martin Solvig. He he had yes. something to say.
2: Yes. Um. Yeah. Asked her whether she would twerk when she picked up her award, and she just said no. And gave him a look that I'm surprised didn't kill him dead in his shoes. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Walked off with her with her prize.
3: Yeah. As well. And t- sorry not to see her there because she looked a fantastic player in some of the clips I've seen. But the Hegerberg stories isn't. Uh, uh, about the modern game isn't unique, is it? Because in your book, I recall reading about the Dick Kerr ladies going back a long, long time. What was their story?
2: Yeah, the Dick Kerr ladies um, were a factory team uh, formed around the start of the 20th century And they played lots of exhibition matches, and particularly uh, when the men's league was in abeyance during the First World War, lots of women's teams were playing exhibition matches, charity matches, and attracting tens of thousands of uh, people through the gates. And it was their success that actually led to women's football being banned in England in 1921. The FA were concerned about uh, its popularity, but what they actually said was they were concerned for the women's welfare. The football was unsuitable for ladies, and uh, yeah, it was banned for 50 years in England. It wasn't until the 1970s. That, that ban was lifted.
3: Yeah, I think it's just worth pausing for that, isn't it? Women's football was banned from Football Association grounds until about 1970. That's just extraordinary, isn't
2: it? Yeah, I mean, thinking about it now and the way that the FA and every, all the clubs are pushing it so much, but I think it's also worth remembering that although football, women's football was banned from grounds licensed by the FA and, you know, referees weren't allowed to officiate, Women's football did continue during the 20th century. They just organised themselves. They were playing on rugby pitches instead, for example, or parkland or pits of scrubland, anywhere they could get to play. It wasn't kind of they were sitting around waiting for the F.A. to tell them they were allowed to. Uh, People like the Dick Kerr ladies were touring the the world, still playing exhibition matches, still drawing tens of thousands of people and these are the true pioneers that uh, the lionesses of today should look back on and thank.
3: Yeah, I think one of them, we've we've got a little clip from later on, Lily Parr, the most prominent of the Dick Kerr ladies, as you say, a real pioneer and more of her later. Um, but the FA the and FIFA get round to supporting a Women's World Cup in 1991. But even then, there was a sort of peculiar rule, wasn't there, if I recall rightly?
2: Yeah, um, there were also some uh, pr- uh, prior tournaments to- before 1991 and not official World Cups. But uh, yeah, they were only playing 80 minutes, 40 minutes each way in-, in these tournaments. I don't know whether they thought that extra 10 minutes was just going to kind of kill these poor women. But uh, yeah, people wouldn't let them play full-length matches at the time.
3: Well, April Heinrich, um, a US player, apparently said they were afraid our ovaries might fall out if we played the full ninety minutes.
2: I mean, it's a funny line, but it is the kind of thing that gets wheeled out by sport-governing bodies. You know, even in ski jumping now, women aren't allowed to do the same height jump as the men are. And that's still the reasoning that they get, they gets wheeled out. They get this concern about, you know, the uteruses will fall out or something. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and just looking around the world, um, I, was, I was reading about um, what's happening around in the world in the different um, World Cup teams. And there, there seems to be dispute after dispute in in Argentina, they've had a strike over conditions and pay. And in Canada at the World Cup, wasn't there a dispute about the, the kind of ground that the, the matches should be played on?
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they played an AstroTurf in Canada. It was artificial pitches. And you would never get a men's World Cup played an artificial pitch, Yeah, you know, all artificial pitches. But yeah, that, that was the rule. I mean... The, I know the, the women players during that tournament were concerned about the increased injury risk and um, they, in, they were worried about the heat in Canada and the fact that you have to rub a crumb on these pitches and that there was kind of a burn risk even. So yeah, I mean people have talked this summer about uh, the experimentation with VAR but you know four years ago they were experimenting with a type of pitch so yeah, it's nothing new really.
3: So it's quite a history. back to you, Bill. Well, as I
0: was just going to say, we, we're uh, going to be able to talk about the VAR very shortly. But, John, now just a little word from our sponsors.
6: It's on the radio. It's about football. And it's real.
7: It's real football radio.
0: Well, you're listening to Box 39 here on Colm Radio 106.6 FM. This is our women's football. World Cup special show, and I am Bill Lawrence. And keep your letters and emails coming in. And we've got some fantastic guests tonight. We've got the uh, the knees and the and the uh, the <laughs> ankles of com Radio Football, Bryn Griffiths, and of course we've got the wonderful Doctor Carrie Dunn, who's uh, been with us and then disappeared with the technology. But Bryn, being the techno expert that he is, tracked her down, and she's with us now. And thanks, Carrie, for joining us. And uh, we've just been talking about a little bit of the history of women's football and uh some of the, the more peculiar aspects that have dogged women's football certainly in the first half of this century and right up until the uh, last century rather right up to the 1970s but now of course it's all changed and we're in the very modern age one of the modern things of course being VAR which uh, is a rather a big thing so uh Bryn I think you want to say one
3: or two things about the VAR yeah um Kerry, the video assisted referee, to spell it out in its full glory, has been an unwelcome star of this World Cup. Um, before we discuss the psychodrama that is the World Cup VAR, let's listen to the reflections you had last time you came on the show just after the Men's World Cup. <laughs>
2: I think the introduction of VAR, which um, I have some reservations about uh, on a kind of intellectual level, but I, just, <laughs> I think it's thinking hilarious. I, I just <laughs> find it so hysterical to see players running around making TV signs and to, and, and to have that kind of added drama. I mean, you saw the number of penalties that got given in the group stages, and it had one nil nil draw across the tournament. I mean, I think that's
1: fantastic.
3: So, Carrie, last time you were on, you thought it was blinking hilarious and added drama. So, year on, what have you got to say about VAR now, Carrie?
2: Well, I think it's worth pointing out that VAR in this tournament is being used in quite a different way than it was uh, last year. So, what happened in the group stages this year, it seemed like everything was basically being referred to VAR. Um, every kind of vaguely contentious decision is being constantly reviewed. And I think the problem it's had this time round is that it's taking so long to do anything. It's really kind of taking some of the drama out. And it's also problematic that you can't see what's happening when you're in the grounds. So everyone's kind of sitting there for seven minutes knowing what's happening so it's also created a problem with them um, the referees because i think because they know they're being reviewed all the time all the decisions are being reviewed all the time they're kind of second guessing themselves they don't have any confidence in their own decisions and so i think that's kind of led to referees not managing matches in the way that they should be um certainly in some of the england matches
1: yeah
3: the cameroon near walk-offs they were they were that was yeah. extraordinary wasn't it <laughs> I, I must admit, I'm, I've i got a sort of confession to make. That I, I know we're all supposed to sort of um, tut and say how terrible that was, but I thought it was fantastic television. It was absolutely, <laughs> you just didn't know what was going to happen next. What was your take on the Cameroon match?
2: Oh, it, it was a funny one, wasn't it? I mean, I kind of thought they were going to walk off at halftime and not come back. I had visions of it um, being just like uh, when England played Pakistan at the Oval in 2006, another another match I was covering in, in the cricket, when Pakistan went off after tea and then never came back out again. It was not it was not an edifying spectacle, but it was certainly an entertaining one, wasn't it?
3: Yeah. What did you make of the VAR decisions in, in the States match, the United States match the other day?
2: I thought they were spot on. I mean, I thought they were spot on in that Cameroon match. And then I thought in the American match, Ellen White was offside by the letter of the law. And then by the letter of the law, that was a penalty. So, you know, the decisions were fine. It was just kind of the execution of um, the actual football on the field that there was problem then.
3: Yeah, so I think think VAR is probably there to stay. But I I tend to agree with you. I think it should be used more lightly for the big match-changing decisions. I I was entering the fantasy world of World Cups past. What would have happened? Would England have won the World Cup bill if um, that goal against Germany had been disallowed in 1966 by by one of your beloved West Ham players? Yeah, I think we would have done, actually, to be honest. The VAR
0: is a work in progress, isn't it? And I think with such a major change to uh, the game and and the the skills needed to manage it aren't quite there yet. The routines aren't there. Um, And the first couple of tournaments, the Men's tournament suffered very badly, I thought, from VAR, particularly as, as you mentioned, Carrie, with the delays there, and the women's has as well. But I think if you give it time, it will get better. Just
3: imagine, though, if if VAR had been called, a Maradona's goal had been disallowed, and the hand of God had been exposed, that would have been good. I'd have enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, Bryn, uh, we're uh, we're, uh, we're getting
3: towards uh, the end of this World Cup. What's impressed you most? Well, I think we've got to note um, the attendance, Sorry, not the attendance, the viewing figures um, for the United States, um, England matched the other day, 11.7 million. And just to put that in context, because it was on free to view television, that was more than both the Champions League, Tottenham and Liverpool semis put together and doubled. That really is a decisive moment in football. What was your best moment, Carrie?
2: Um... I think it would have to be uh, England's win over Norway in the quarterfinals, I think, uh, as a a journalist covering this tournament. Um, It's the best kind of showcase of the way that England can play football and the way they can put really good teams to the sword when they set up correctly for it. And I thought it really showed um, the Lionesses at their best.
3: I was really interested when we came to the United States match that... um, neville changed his formation what was that about why, why did he, he, he i thought he was really stuck with his formation then then he changed it
2: yeah i think he was worried to be honest i thought he was i think he set up a formation to deal with um megan rapinoe and the whole left-hand side of that uh, usa team and then as it turned out she didn't play <laughs> so i think he was slightly caught out slightly outthought by the more experienced jill ellis the usa coach
3: it was extraordinary that we'd got this 4-2-3-1 formation, the playing it out, that sort of very fluid football. And he'd sort of made that a point of absolutely iron principle. And then in the biggest match that we had, all change.
2: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was quite, it looked like quite an attacking side from, from the off. I mean, uh, to, to bring Beth Mead in, for example, which I thought was probably the right decision. Um, but it did also lead to a lot of kind of chaotic defensive moments. I mean, I don't think Millie Bright has been fit for, for several matches, for example, um, but he likes to have his central defence pairing there. So, yeah, I think he has made several mistakes tactically throughout this tournament, but obviously it is his first experience at this level. He didn't play in a, in a World Cup himself during his own playing career, so this is one kind of his first time on this stage.
0: Mm. Well, let's dip our toes for the first time into an analysis of how the Lionesses reached this World Cup in France. Uh, We're going to hear from Stato, our statistician, analysisist, and number-crunching guru here on Box 39, as we also listen to the first of our all-women musical tracks tonight, with Lenka singing, We Are Powerful, and they certainly were. We are invincible.
2: We
1: are unique. We are incredible, we are free We are beautiful, we are a dream We are wonderful, you and me We are powerful
6: This is Stato. The matches in UEFA Group 1 of the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup qualification were played between September 2017 and September 2018. England played 8 matches, home and away, against Wales, Russia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Kazakhstan. England's campaign started with a 6-0 drubbing of Russia at home. Two months later, they played host to Bosnia and Herzegovina and beat them both 4-0.
5: In the 1920s, Lily Parr was perhaps the most celebrated footballer in England. At a time when women's football had reached unprecedented levels of popularity, she was a star. Parr was a pioneer and a role model, a representative for female footballers across the country. But the FA in 1921 sought to put an end to the growth of the women's game. Complaints have been made as to football being played by women, read a statement released by the governing body. The council feel impelled to express their strong opinion that the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. Parr spent her illustrious career battling against deeply ingrained stereotypes, against the patronising comments of men who refused to accept that women could play the sport. But she didn't need words to make her point. By the time she'd finished, her statements had been made on the pitch. Pa was born in 1905 in St Helens and showed a keen interest in sport from an early age. Her brother taught her to play rugby and football and she was skilled in both. She made her debut in 1919, at the age of just 14, for St Helens ladies. Already, people were taking notice. She was nearly six feet tall and towered above her teammates. She had jet black hair and a gaze of steely determination. On the sidelines before the game, she smoked cigarettes. She was a formidable opponent. In her second game against Dick Kerr's ladies, Parr impressed so much that the opposition's manager, Alfred Franklin, asked her to join his team. She accepted and moved to Preston, and embarked on one of the most prolific careers in the sport's history. Dick Cares paved the way for future women's teams to follow. Their players, working at an engineering factory when they weren't on the pitch, were the first to wear shorts, the first to tour in Europe and the USA, and at the heart of this progressiveness was Parr. In her first season, Parr scored 43 goals and quickly began to attract huge crowds. Fans attended just to watch her play, to see her kick the ball with her famously powerful left foot. During one game at Goodison Park in Liverpool, 53,000 people filled the stadium. It remained a record attendance for the women's game until 2012. The FA accused the club of using too much money on expenses and not donating enough to charity. At the same time, they made clear their view that football is quite unsuitable for females. Parr attempted to prove demonstrably that the opposite was true. During a game in Chorley one day, a male professional goalkeeper challenged her to beat him from the penalty spot. His tone was condescending, so Parr accepted, determined to show him up. He saved her shot, but the hard leather ball was struck with such power that it broke his arm. Despite the attitude of the FA, Dick Kerr's pressed on, and so too did Parr, who continued to score at an astonishing rate, but it wasn't long before they were denied access to large venues. Interest waned, and eventually the club was taken over by English Electric, who sacked some members of the team. Parr was one of them. She wasn't deterred, and simply moved on to Preston Ladies. While playing for her new club, she worked at Whittingham Hospital and Lunatic Asylum. There she met her partner, Mary, and they bought a house together in Preston. Pa was openly gay and refused to hide it, despite the persecution at the time of those known to be in same-sex relationships. At Preston Ladies, Parr was equally prolific. She continued to play until 1950, when, aged 45, after scoring in an emphatic 11-1 win over Scotland, she retired. She had, according to most estimates, scored a career total of over 900 goals. She died in 1978 after a battle with cancer. She would lived long enough to see the FA repeal the ban, which denied female teams access to the biggest stadiums and, after her death, she became an icon for those pursuing further development of women's football. Over her lengthy playing career, Pa did far more than just score goals. She changed the perception of the women's game. and For that, she'll be remembered long into the future.
4: It's in the box.
0: So you are listening to Box 39 here on 106.6 FM Colm Radio, where magic happens. And I am Bill Lawrence, and thank you for your letters and a few emails that have popped in. We'll talk about those a little later in the show. We'd like to welcome once again Bryn Griffiths, uh, the knees and uh, thighs of Colm Radio football, and Dr. Carrie Dunn, a journalist who's been out covering the Women's World Cup and is with us via the magic of Skype. So, Bryn,
3: over to you. I think it's foot- worth noting from that, that fantastic clip about Lily Parr, who we're dedicating this show to, that women's football today stands on legends such as Lily, and it's, it's, it's really worth hearing that, because I think it's it's tremendous and shows what a commitment some some women have to the, the beautiful game. So, Carrie, coming back to you, is how did you come to be a leading women's football pundit? How did that come about?
2: <laughs> um... Mostly because when I first started writing out women's football, um, there weren't really many other people doing it, to be honest. So, um, I covered the 2007 um, Women's World Cup from afar, so I was kind of watching matches online and stuff and writing about it for my own blog. Um then 2011, I was working freelance at The Times. Uh, I've been doing that for a couple of years by that point. And I'd nagged my sports editor. To, to, I was saying, you know, you should send someone. I'll, I'll go. Let me do it. Let me do it. And they said yes. So I was out in Germany uh, following England for, uh, for that World Cup. And uh, yeah, I've now covered. That's my, my, my third in person this year. And so, yes, um, about 10 years of, uh, of writing and reporting about women's football.
3: So what's the academic background in sports writing? You're, you're a doctor, Carrie Dunn. What's all that about?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, my professional career has all been a little bit kind of, uh, it's a bit portfolio, shall we say. <laughs> so I first started uh, doing sports journalism when I was a teenager. Um, actually, I moved house recently and I found some of my first clippings. Um, I did uh, two weeks' work experience as we had to in, in those days, in so the mid 90s. And I went to the local paper and they tried to get me to do kind of useful things like work on the news desk and work on the classified ads. And after the first kind of week of that, I think they just kind of thought this is an absolute waste of time, just let it go on the sports desk. And they did. And uh, I spent a week there uh, writing articles, going to press conferences, ringing people, and yeah, so I was 15 then. Uh, After that, I did some stuff for them, kind of off and on, kind of for free. And then uh, my local club, I grew up in Luton, um, asked me to do some work for them when I was at university, so I was doing my first proper features and interviews then. And uh, yeah, I was uh, I've been kind of freelance ever since writing for different newspapers, different magazines. but I also kind of wanted to do some uh, kind of research, I guess. I did a master's degree in English literature and I was really interested in um, the way that people wrote about their lives. but as a sports fan I was interested in how they wrote about their lives in sport. So that's how I kind of got into doing academic research. I applied to do a PhD and I wanted to uh, talk to female football fans because all the research that had been done previously had been about male football fans. All the books that were being written were by male football fans, you know, like Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch. And so I did my PhD in a women's experience of football in England and all my kind of research projects since then have been about women's experience of sport one way or another.
3: So you, you've written what I thought was a thoroughly enjoyable book, the, the Roar of the Lionesses, and you've got another one coming out, um, is it in the autumn? Um, the Pride of the Lionesses, yeah. the changing face of women's football in England. What can we expect?
2: Oh, well, I haven't written it yet. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm a bit disappointed with the last chapter. I was hoping it was going to be better until last, early this week.
2: Oh, I, I know, I know. Well, um, my publishers gave me a deadline of a fortnight after the World Cup final, um, expecting that England might do pretty well. So England have done pretty well. They have, they have. So yes, I've got 17 days to get to get this manuscript finished. But it's um, following some of the same clubs and the same players and the same coaches that I spoke to in Raw of the Lionesses to see how they've experienced the past three years um, since I spoke to them last. Well, I'm following England in their uh, preparation for the women's world cup and also kind of talking to some of the um, lost legends of women's football again you might have seen some of the media coverage recently about the women who went to the unofficial world cup in mexico in 1971
3: they played in front of huge crowds i heard in mexico
2: ninety-five thousand
3: people yeah wow that, that sounds like a story worth telling <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's one of the really, really important things, I think, that we should never forget when we're talking about you know, t- today's um, growth in women's football. And the fact that the WSL is growing and domestic crowds are growing and you know, the Lionesses are at Wembley this autumn. We should never forget that women's football has been there all this time. It's just been ignored and it's been hugely popular all over the world.
3: Well, I promise to get you back to Essex to talk about that book when it's published. Um, Carrie, back over to you, Bill. Well, let's hear again from Stato, who's been
0: tracking the Lionesses' route to France for the World Cup finals of 2019. And he's remembering some more of those qualification fixtures in front of crowds ranging from over 20,000 to just 340. And Stato is accompanied by Alicia Keys with Girl on Fire.
1: She's just a girl and she's on fire.
6: In November 2017, England beat Kazakhstan 5-0 at Colchester Community Stadium in front of a crowd of 9,643. In April 2018, England were held to a goalless draw by Wales in Southampton with a crowd of 25,603 in attendance. That was the last of England's home fixtures. The next four would be on the road. The first of these was a 2-0 defeat of Bosnia and Herzegovina with a crowd of 340 looking on in Zenica.
8: I'm Lucy Bronze, I'm old I play for Olympic Lyonnais and England. California soul. California soul. As long as I can remember, Lyon have been one of, if not the best team in Europe every single year. They've, they've reached, I don't, know many, I don't know how many Champions League finals, you know, they're a really dominant team full of world-class players the world's best players play at Lyon and I definitely knew as soon as they came that Lyon was where I wanted to be when I was really little I was kind of motivated by my brother my brother played football my brother did whatever he did and I wanted to be exactly like my big brother when I was little so I copied everything he did I think when I first seen women's football the big names were kelly smith rachel yankee and those were the two that were almost like superstars in the women's game and those were two that i really looked up to because i knew that they were the best players and i wanted to be the best players i can only say positive things from the teams that i played for but i definitely think a lot more teams and countries as well could do a lot more to to help the, the young girls and the females who are actually playing international football you know you look at World Cups and Euros, and there's still players there that they're not professional players, which is, is crazy in this day and age that so many top players are still having to work and do other things. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been for it myself. I think when I was at university, didn't have any funding, didn't have any resources really. Was having to work another job whilst trying to play football, whilst trying to go to the gym. Whilst trying to go and get an education, it was uh, it was tough. But I think in women's football, you see a lot that the players that do make it are the ones that are tough-skinned. I mean, so in women's football, yeah, you know, the resources aren't always there. For people, the funding's not always there. But sometimes it makes the best players. You know, it gives players some bit more bit more of an edge. You know, it's not just about money or just success. You know, they're, they're driven. This is their dream.
0: you are listening to Box 39 here on 106.6 FM Colm Radio and that's of course the Three Lions football's coming home and it really has come home hasn't it over the last few weeks uh, just so it's been on our televisions it's been on the main stations it's been talked about on the radio and it's been read about in the newspapers it's been fantastic to have a second summer of a World Cup I find you know I'm quite getting used to this I want there to be a, another World Cup next year uh, I, I'm in the habit now and in fact I'm torn between world cups of cricket and football at the moment but we are talking about the football world cup so with Bryn, uh let's start with thinking about
3: players who's our best players would you say brin well i think that i'm i'm with neville on this one i reckon that one of the the best players of the tournament has got to have been lucy bronze who we've just heard from absolutely astounding uh, athleticism her runs her Her joining up with um, Paris, I've just been so impressed by her skill. Who's been the other standout players for you, Carrie?
2: Oh, there've been so many. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about the Women's World Cup is that I think people can get a little bit insular sometimes in their in their football watching. I think we're all kind of guilty of it. But you know, people like you know, Christiane Andler, the Chile goalkeeper. I mean, she had a real test, she but she did. played so brilliantly. I mean, I think the goalkeeping actually this tournament has been tremendous. Yeah, I agree with that great because there's been so many years of joking about um women goalkeepers and again i mean i know it's kind of wet blankety of me to point it out but this is kind of like the first time in history that women have actually had access to proper goalkeeping coaching i interviewed pauline cope who's a long-serving england goalkeeper during the 90s and into the uh, 2000s and she said the first um goalkeeping
0: Hello,
1: Carrie.
0: Oh, oh, we've lost Carrie again. It's, uh, it's, it's, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll, we'll jump into a little bit of music. while well, Bryn once again uh, plays with the magic of uh, his um, uh, laptop in front of him. Now, uh, Shakira sang the 2010 South African Men's World Cup theme, which uh, was called... Time for Africa, and our man Stato has chosen this great song to accompany his analysis of the final qualifying games the Lionesses played just one year ago. Now, Stato loves qualifying tournaments. In fact, he said he's got quite a distaste for those he refers to as Johnny-come-lately statisticians who ignore the plethora of gorgeous deep-thought statistics that are found in the qualifying rounds of competitions. So over to you, Stato, Calm Radio's very own Deep thought statistician. Statisticians Statistician. Well done.
8: This time for Africa.
6: By June 2018, England had played 5-1-4, drawn 1. Next up was Russia, who they defeated 3-1 in Moscow, in front of a crowd of 1,859. Then, in August 2018, England and Wales met again, this time in Newport, where a crowd of 5,053 saw a much better game, which England won 3-0. England's unbeaten campaign in the qualifiers ended with a 6-0 trouncing of Kazakhstan in Pavlodar, with
8: 6,842 in attendance.
0: Statistician,
8: you're listening to Box. Uh, what is
3: it? Thirty-nine. Box thirty-nine. So Carrie, um, you were telling us about the goalkeepers, but what about Marta? Has, do you think that must have been her last World Cup? The uh, the great Brazilian icon.
2: Um, I, I would hope not, but it, it might well be. I mean, the uh, the rallying cry that she gave at the at the end of her last match was just. Um, incredible Um the way that she was talking to the next generation saying there's not going to be a Marta around forever there won't be a Formiga around forever or a Christiana and it's up to young girls now to step up and fight for women's football in Brazil I mean Marta has been the trailblazer there for, for so many years now and yet they're still suffering in terms of funding obviously Marta has played in Sweden for so long and so, yes, it's another one of those examples you mentioned earlier of national federations needing mm. to back
3: their women. Yeah, and there's certainly some fantastic women to back. If, if I could put aside for a moment my adoration of the Lionesses, um, Megan Rapino from the United States, what an icon, what a player. I'd, I'd never, I'm, afraid, I'm ashamed to say I'd never heard of her before the World Cup, but we have now. What have you got to say about her, Carrie? Oh, oh. <laughs> um, I think
1: one of
2: the... Things about Megan Rapinoe, Obviously, she's a fantastic player, but also I think a lot of the stuff to do with her is about her aura. She has such kind of confidence and command and authority, and I think that scares a lot of opponents. But um, yes, those of you don't know about her kind of uh, more activist background, she was the uh, first player to step up and support um, Colin Kaepernick, um, the NFL player, and she took a knee during the national anthem. Um, obviously she's had a war of words with the president lately, saying that she's not going to go to the White House should they be invited, because she doesn't want to meet him. Yes, yeah, um, so and she
3: said it in terms to... that we can't use on the radio.
2: She did. She does do things like that as well. But she, um, she she cares an awful lot about a lot of things, and more than that, she steps up and she backs up those words. It's not just kind of uh, paying lip service to things.
3: And a great icon for lesbian and gay rights There's a, a rather... Portly, beer-bellied slob in the alehouse in Colchester observed with a great insight, she's a lesbian, during the match that we watched the other day.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, she is, yes. That, that's
0: I think uh, well, what was really interesting, you talked about uh, Rapino being very strong and powerful, and it just sort of summarised for me the whole uh, USA team, really. Strong and powerful, not just physically, But in their uh, their approach to uh, their whole defending, they're they're so tight in their back line, weren't they, and and, and their uh, ability to work as a team, um, I just thought that was sort of, again, a a sort of parallel to Megan Rapinoe. She just seemed to sort of exemplify that power that they've got.
2: Yeah, I think they're very strong mentally, psychologically as well, I mean... It, it, it's all very American, isn't it? That kind of ultra-confidence um, that you only seem to get with with American sports teams. And, yeah, it's amazing how it carries on for generation to generation. But, um, obviously, the USA Women's National Team have benefited hugely um, from decent funding. And we should probably note here that when the FA were just lifting their ban on women's football in the 1970s, and the USA were introducing a law called Title IX, which guarantees equal funding for boys' and girls' sport uh, in, in schools and colleges. So these women have um, obviously really benefited from soccer being treated seriously for girls uh, from the very start
0: yeah so our journey is uh, a way behind but I, I i felt from this world cup it was it was the start or not the start but it you know we're a work in progress and and we will reach the same level as the united states uh, quite soon but uh, not maybe not quite there yet but we're just gonna take a break for just about 30 seconds while our house band gang exit are gonna play the mission impossible theme tune So that was House Kang Exit with the Mission Impossible theme tune. And uh, it's terrific to have them with us uh, once again. And thank you very much. It's just here, the last bit of it. So, Bryn, it was a Mission Impossible in the end, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, it was disappointing. But no, we've we've got to look ahead. We've got to um look to the final and um carrie can it be anybody other than the united states i i really fear for the netherlands what do you think
2: i don't know i think having watched last night's um last night's match you know, watching the netherlands against sweden both kind of come out quite cagely quite tentatively um The Netherlands cannot do that against the USA. They're going to be smashed to smithereens. So they're going to have to come out and play the kind of football they did earlier in the tournament, play with a little bit more liberty and freedom. If they do that, I think the USA might have some problems because the the USA don't like being attacked, I don't think, and they don't like physical challenges, and certainly the Netherlands are good at that too. So I think it might be closer than, than we might expect on paper.
3: Do you think Martins might be able to do one of her Cruyff turns in this match?
2: I would hope so. I mean, she didn't um, finish the 90 minutes yesterday, so let's hope that she's fit uh, for the final because it would be lovely to see her on, on the biggest stage of all.
3: Yeah, it was great, those clips on YouTube where they showed her Cruyff turn and then they showed the the real Cruyff, Johan Cruyff's turn, and, and they were identical. I thought I thought that was absolutely great. What's your predicted score then?
2: Oh... I think I'll probably go 3-2 the USA, but I would want the Netherlands to win, but I don't think they will.
3: (laughs) Oh, I'm going for 4-0 to the United States. And I must admit that... um unusual for me because I usually always want to back the underdog but I've, I've got a soft spot for this United States team despite them knocking England out. So what do you what I haven't been watching the, the other wing of the competition I've been obsessed about England's path to the to the final so what, what's what's Netherlands been like in the the other matches?
1: Um, but they've actually been quite
2: similar to England I think in terms of a lot of the time they've done what they've needed to do to get through. But they do have a lot of uh, very impactful players. So like Viviana Miedema, who plays for Arsenal in the WSL. Daniela van der Donk, um, again, another Arsenal player. They've been linking up extremely well. Miedema is already at Medlin's leading scorer. She's only 22. Um, So, you know, she's always going to be a threat. They've got some really fantastic um, impact super subs they can bring on with plenty of pace. And they're,
3: they're a good side. So, so we're not expecting the. You're not expecting the walkover, the massacre that I suspect might happen. I, I just think that England are a very physically strong side, and the states seem to be much stronger than England. I, I just thought the Netherlands the other night they just didn't look, They didn't have that physical presence in the game that um, I think they might need on Sunday.
2: I mean, again, the Netherlands were up against Sweden in, in their semi-final. Sweden also a quite tall, quite strong side, and the Netherlands went toe-to-toe with them. So I think the, the key thing would be coming quickly out of the blocks. The USA will, can start right from the very first whistle, and they can be right on you. They did that in the last World Cup final, um, as Japan know. So, yes, um, Netherlands will have to be right on it, right from minute one.
0: Can I ask you a quick quick question, Carrie? There was a lot of fuss in the papers that the United States had sort of rumbled the English uh, hotel, done a little bit of spying. What was all that about?
2: Oh, I think it was uh, made more of a fuss of than it actually was. I think when Phil Neville was asked about it in the press conference, he was actually saying it with a bit of a, kind of a nod and a wink, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek, saying it was a breach of etiquette. But you know, of course, a football team of the USA stature is going to have people scouting out the facilities. So what it was was that England was staying in the best hotel in Leon, and the USA were thinking maybe we'll move there as one of the FIFA-approved hotels if we get to the final. I think that's all it was, and it was a uh, yes, blown out of proportion.
3: Anything to say quickly about the third-place playoff? I must admit, I I'll watch it, but third-place playoffs are terrible matches to watch, aren't they?
1: Well, I don't know. I quite enjoyed the
2: 2015 third place playoff. I thought that was quite good. That was a that was a nice redemption arc. I think it's important that England go out and play to the best of their ability Absolutely. and try and win that bronze medal on Saturday.
3: A bronze for bronze. <laughs>
0: Well, women's football really has been the winner, hasn't it? Ratings through the roof. It is a work in progress, but uh, it is for all sports. Always striving to get better. You know, in 50 years' time, when England managers for every sport are wearing those waistcoats that we've seen Southgate and Neville wearing, and no one quite remembers why they're wearing them, the words of this legendary man will live on. Let's have our final words from the best England manager that never was, Brian Clough.
7: How do you react, though, when someone, you know, from your playing staff comes and says, boss, I think you've got, I think you're doing this wrongly?
3: Good, well, I ask him which way he thinks it should be done. We get down to it, and then we talk about it for 20 minutes, and then we decide I was right.
7: When the England team fly to the World Cup, an ancient ritual will start to unfold perfected over England's previous failures to win the World Cup away from home. It follows this pattern. Phase 1. Pre-Tournament. Certainty that England will win the World Cup. Phase 2. During the tournament, England meet a former wartime enemy. Phase 3. The English conclude that the game turned on one freakish piece of bad luck that could happen only to them. Phase 4. Moreover, Everyone else cheated. Phase 5. England are knocked out without getting anywhere near lifting the cup. Phase 6. The day after elimination, normal life resumes. Phase 7. A scapegoat is found. Phase 8. England enter the next World Cup thinking they will win
1: it.
6: So, England qualified with 22 points from 8 games, scoring 29 goals and considering just that one goal away to Russia. Wales came second in the group, but didn't qualify after winning 5 of their matches and losing just once. They only managed to score 7 goals, unlike the Russians, who scored 16 goals, but managed to lose 3 times. Nikita Paris scored 6 goals for England, Tony Duggan 4 and Jill Scott 3. 10 other England women scored goals, and that was the journey they took to the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup Finals, according to Stato.
0: So this has been our Women's World Cup special. With our special thanks to our special guests, Spring Griffiths, the Colm Radio voice of football, and Carrie Dunn, author, journalist, broadcaster and lecturer on women's sport and women's football. And Carrie will be joining us in just a few moments on our sister show, Box Box 39, Red Button, so stay tuned for that. Now, I am Bill Lawrence. Join me again next time for another treasure chest of magazine music and the funny side of life-rooted our community here on 106.6 FM Colm Radio. So, from Studio 1, up here on the fourth floor of Com Radio Tires, high above the full and fertile lands of northeast Essex. It's time for us to close box 39. Once more, be seeing you. Get up! 39 has been the guppy production for coal media.